Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Scientia Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Matt Gray, co-founder and CEO of Transition Zero, to talk about the transition to a zero-carbon economy. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here, though. It's great to be here. One of the projects that Transition Zero works on and that we'll touch on today began as a collaboration with one of my clients, SWATTime. So I've known a few members of Matt's team for several years now. But Transition Zero has a lot of other work going on, so I'm excited to learn more about that today. Happy to share it. Matt, to start, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Transition Zero? Yeah, for sure. So my background isn't technical per se. So I started my career in investment banking. So I was a carbon trading analyst and forming trading decisions within the carbon market in Europe. Did that for a number of years and then got pulled into oil and gas analysis and researching which oil and gas companies to buy and sell, um, very typical investment banking work. And I sort of became a bit demoralized by, I think, serving fossil fuel companies and empowering them through our research and analysis. And I sort of decided to resign from that line of work and start working for not-for-profits. So Within the not-for-profit space, I joined an organization called the Carbon Tracker Initiative, which looks at the risks associated with continuing to invest in fossil fuel companies. And what I was doing at Carbon Tracker was building out their power utility team. So doing analysis on the risks associated with continuing to invest and operate coal-fired power plants throughout the world. And how the story came about, both founding Transition Zero, but also my interactions with what time and and you, Heather, was we were building out economic models, and these are asset-level financial models that looked at the operating costs and the financial viability of coal-fired power plants throughout the world. And we started building our models in Europe and America, and there was lots of data around the productivity of these assets and the emissions that they release. But what we found is once we tried to build our models in Asia, and in particular China, the data was very sparse. And the data around the productivity of the asset and the emissions that they were producing was just not available at asset level. And this is what led us to exploring the use of satellite imagery to estimate the productivity and emissions from these assets through the use of satellite imagery and machine learning. So we did a study at Carbon Tracker called Nowhere to Hide, estimating the productivity and emissions of coal-fired power plants using satellite imagery and some basic email techniques. Released that report. It was really well received. Ended up collaborating with WhatTime on a Google AI Impact Challenge grant, which we were lucky enough to win. And that was sort of the catalyst for starting Transition Zero. The team at Carbon Tracker was growing and sort of warranted a new organization. So Yeah, two years later, here I am with Transition Zero. It's been an exciting path. So what does Transition Zero do and why is this important for reducing emissions? Yeah, so Transition Zero 
is a climate data analytics not-for-profit. We were co-founded in 2020. We were based in London and entirely grant-funded by philanthropic institutions such as Bloomberg Pythanthropies, Google.org, the Quadrature Climate Foundation, amongst others. And what we do is we provide open data tools, modeling and analysis to support the phase out of fossil fuels and power and heavy industry and the transition to cleaner sources of energy, such as wind and solar and battery storage, etc. And how we do that is we provide what we call investment-grade data to our partners working on the ground in emerging markets, and in particular, Asian emerging markets such as China, India, and Southeast Asia. And they take that data to help support policymakers, investors, and corporates to make decisions to avoid the risks associated with losing money as we transition and embrace and take advantage of the opportunities, both economic and financial opportunities, as we embrace these new technologies that I just mentioned. What role does machine learning play in creating this analysis? So for us, machine learning plays a host of roles. There's the tracking role that machine learning plays with regards to estimating the productivity and the emissions of fossil fuel power plants and indeed heavy industry facilities as well, such as cement and steel plants. So that's a big part of what we do through the Climate Trace Initiative, which was co-founded by by What Time Transition Zero and a number of other organizations. So what we do there is we use satellite imagery, um, both publicly available and commercial imagery. And depending on the application or the sector, we take signals, whether they be visual signals or heat signals from that imagery, and we apply email techniques to estimate the productivity of the assets. And then we overlay that with emissions factors based on best available data. And that allows us to predict the emissions from those assets. And that data is then fed into economic and financial models, which allow us to tell investors and policymakers how those assets are going to perform as we transition away from fossil fuels towards cleaner sources of energy. The other application that we're currently working on is identifying specific assets in the electricity grid. So within the electricity grid, there's the generation assets themselves, but those generation assets are all connected via distribution and transmission lines and things called substations, which change the frequency of electricity. So assets or stuff like transmission lines, distribution lines, substations, these are all assets that we can pick up from satellite imagery to identify and size or get an estimate of the size. So that's another application that we're exploring. And another application that we're just embarking on as well is using data science to estimate the productivity of wind and solar assets as well. So it sounds like remote sensing imagery is one of the key inputs to these models, but they also require ground truth in order to train and validate them. I know for the emissions project where for power plants and heavy industry where you're trying to estimate um, what each plant is producing, ground truth generation and emissions data is important. And for the latter piece, what forms of data do you rely on and how do you obtain it? How do you ensure your models are, are properly validated? Yeah, so I guess just taking the example of fossil fuel facilities, so coal and gas, electric power plants, 
and steel and cement facilities. What we do is typically there is good data availability in some markets. So for coal and gas power, for example, there is the European Emissions Trading Scheme, which provides good data on emissions, and that's a way of training our models. And there's also the grid operators in markets such as Europe and in North America that provide generation data, a reasonable level of accuracy and time frequency. And that allows us to train the models and then release those models in markets such as China and other parts of Asia where this data typically isn't shared in the public arena. That said, I think like we are acutely aware, I think, of the need to validate our estimates with local partners. At Transition Zero, we have what we call in-country market analysts who are on the ground in some of these jurisdictions that we are modeling, and they help validate the results, help engage with policy officials and investors and some of the operators of these assets, just to make sure that we are sense-checking our models to ensure that they are as accurate as possible. Because I think one thing that we've learned over the last two to three years is domain expertise is is indispensable when you're building these models. You can't underestimate how important it is to have experts facilitating the development of these models just to make sure they do reflect what is happening on the ground. So I know you're producing estimates for both power plants and heavy industry and and possibly other types of industrial things. How do your approaches for these things, how are they similar and how do they differ depending on what it is you're trying to, what type of facility you're trying to estimate emissions from? Yeah, so the similarities I think is in the process. Um, So typically you need training data. And as I mentioned, we typically get our training data from either Europe or North America because there is a, a history of being more liberal with data availability, a number of key regulations, both in Europe and the US, mandates that operators make data available, and that allows us to train the models. And that is something that we do, of course, across both electricity and heavy industry. I think the differences across power and heavy industry are for power We're typically relying on visual signals. So we take optical imagery from commercial data providers like Planet. And because it's relatively high resolution and very timely, we can detect a signal from the plume of steam coming out of the facility and correlate that with the extent that it's being utilized. With regards to to heavy industry assets, such as cement and steel, we typically rely on heat signals. So we're we're using thermal imagery to correlate or use it as a proxy for for understanding production and therefore emissions. So for a steel facility, for example, they emit a lot of heat because the process to create steel is very energy intensive. And as a consequence, there is a a tremendous amount of heat being generated at these sites and we can pick that up with publicly available thermal imagery so the size of the plume or sorry the size of the heat signal is a relatively good proxy for understanding to what extent the facility is being used and that is what we then use to estimate production 
So it sounds like domain knowledge is critical, you know, basically understanding how power plants are different than heavy industry. You know, they produce different signals that can be seen from different types of satellites. It sounds like that's key to success for these projects. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I think within electricity, I mean, comparing electricity to, say, steel, I would say coal-fired power plants are much more homogeneous than steel facilities. But even within coal-fired power plants, there's all sorts of nuances around how they cool the facility, whether there's control technologies, the age, which of course affects the efficiency and therefore the productivity of the asset, and also the type of coal that is being fed into these facilities. So there's all these factors which, yeah, inherently require a lot of domain expertise. But I think the more you move into those heavy industry subsectors, it does become a lot more nuanced and these differences do start to emerge much more than within electricity. So you mentioned Climate Trace previously, which is the coalition of organizations that are trying to track greenhouse gas emissions across different sectors of the economy and doing so globally. And as an organization, Climate Trace does strive for global coverage, but reducing emissions in some parts of the world will be more impactful than in others. How do you decide where to focus your efforts? Yeah, so I mean, I guess just to take a step back and explain Climate Trace. So each member organization focuses on a different sector, and there are numerous organizations who are part of Climate Trace, and that coalition of of organizations is growing rapidly as people become more interested and we find out different organizations have data for different sectors. But Transition Zero focuses on power and heavy industry. In terms of how we think about focusing our attention. I think broadly this is something that everyone or all organizations who are part of Trace think about the problem of where to focus is we try and focus on A, those countries that are emitting the most and B, those countries that don't have a history of data availability either for cultural or resource reasons. So for example, in China and parts of Southeast Asia, there is either a cultural, I guess, a cultural preference not to share data, or for some of the smaller Southeast Asian countries, and particularly in Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, there often isn't the resources to make emissions inventories available. So that's how we think about how we spend our time and what we focus on. So we typically like to spend most of our time monitoring and trying to understand what's happening in Asia because it's a huge emitter and is, is set to become you know, quite an important part of the global economy over the next sort of 20 to 30 years. And within that, I think there is, I think, a broad reluctance to share data because historically that's never happened. But also in a lot of instances, there is just not the resources and the willingness to dedicate resources to monitoring emissions because historically externalities haven't been priced and capital allocation decisions haven't been made based on emissions. But of course, that is all changing and and now there's a, a growing awareness, particularly from international investors, that these assets do need to be progressively phased out or converted into different technologies that emit progressively less CO2 in the atmosphere. Thinking more broadly about Transition Zero and your goals, how do you measure the impact of your models and analysis to be sure 
you're accomplishing and what you set out to accomplish? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we're currently a not-for-profit organization. So that means we measure our success based on the impact. Our mission is for affordable and dependable energy for everyone. And what we really mean by that is we want zero carbon sources of electricity, which we believe will be the cheapest forms of electricity in the not too distant future if it is not today. And we want everyone to have access to that type of electricity to benefit from, I think, the benefits associated with having energy and something that the global north is, you know, takes for granted and has had access to for, for some time. So in terms of how we measure success on a practical level, I think it really comes down to the policy implications. So we, alongside the models and data that we produce, we regularly release reports and blogs with the aim of shifting narratives to highlight the cost advantages of transitioning to clean energy and supporting policymakers and decision makers with the data and tools that they need to make quite technical and complex decisions around how to phase out fossil fuel assets and how to create an enabling policy environment for clean technologies. One practical example was the first report that we released in 2021 was on China's coal production or coal use within the electricity sector and whether they were on track to meet their net zero pledge, which they made a few months earlier to be net zero by 2060. That report received widespread media attention and was a report that was picked up and used by Chong Kerry, who was in China at the time with his climate envoy to talk to policymakers and political leaders in China about China's policy and investment decisions around coal. And from the feedback we got from Al Gore, who was the person who handed the report to John Kerry, we are of the understanding that that report was influential with regards to some decisions that the Chinese government around made around reducing the number of coal-fired power plants that they were planning to build over the coming years. Another example was last year, we produced a company profile for a steel company called JFE. It's a Japanese steel company. And that company profile was based on the data that I mentioned. And what it did was it showed that JFE's climate policy was inconsistent with the goals from the Paris Agreement, meaning based on what they were planning to do in their company reports, they were not going to be net zero by 2050. And what we did is we worked with some activist investors who negotiated or had an engagement with management at JFE Steel, and that resulted in the company changing its policy to replace an aging high emissions blast furnace with a lower emissions electric arc furnace. And that is something that we're really, really proud of, and I think shows how data can be used constructively to engage with companies and get them to reduce their emissions. So your data science and machine learning team has been growing pretty steadily, even though hiring for this domain is pretty challenging due to, due to the demand for professionals in the field. What approaches to recruiting and onboarding have been most successful for your team? Yeah, it tremendously challenging, I would say. These are very specialist roles and skills, and, and currently these people are in high demand. And I think, you know, particularly challenging for not-for-profits given it's difficult to compete with Wall Street and big tech. So I think how we 
compensate for that is we, you know, really lean on the impact side of what we're trying to do and try and emphasize that, you know, the purpose and impact that they will have by developing the data that we are working on. So instead of helping big tech with ad optimization, they'll be helping governments and policymakers in some of the poorest parts of the world really to reduce their emissions and to give them a better understanding of what they need to do and how they can reduce their emissions. And I think that is something that does appeal to a lot of people who increasingly you know, want to work on something a bit more impactful. But beyond that, we try and offer a good working environment with benefits such as enhanced gender-neutral parental leave, flexible working, employee assistance, etc. Um, we recently introduced a policy called Neptune Days where the tech team can spend 10% of their time on something innovative and new that they want to work on and it doesn't have to be part of their day-to-day job. So we try and bring as many, I guess, non-salary benefits as we can given the limitations associated with being a not-for-profit. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered organizations? Generally or on recruiting per se? More generally. I think generally my advice, which is is probably quite generic, is don't lead with AI. I think lead with the use case and the problem that you're solving. I think there's tremendous stuff happening with AI at the moment, but there one thing I noticed when we we launched Transition Zero a couple of years ago is there was a lot of hype around email and the, the role that email could play for various types of applications. But I think really to be successful, you need to, I think, understand what your use case is, who the problem owner is, and how you're going to solve the problem. And if AI is part of that, then great. I think for us, AI was just one piece of the puzzle and it needed to be complemented with physics-based models, with traditional economic and financial models. Because ultimately for us and the stakeholders that we're trying to influence, they are particularly motivated by the financial and economic implications of the energy transition. So AI and email on its own isn't going to give them that sort of insight they need to change policy and change capital allocation decisions. Finally, where do you see the impact of Transition Zero in three to five years? Wow. I think one thing that we're particularly excited about is we are currently developing an open source energy systems model called Future Energy Outlook, which is a very ambitious project. The ambition of of Future Energy Outlook is to eventually have global coverage and provide net zero aligned scenarios for all countries in the world, as well as highly granular asset level data insights. So it will be an energy systems model and it will cover roughly about 160 countries. And within those countries, it will provide policymakers and investors an understanding of how the energy mix needs to change over time for that country to be net zero aligned. And we hope that that will inform policymaking decisions for resource planning within their electricity sector, but also for a number of these countries in the global south who desperately need climate finance. We hope that it will inform decisions around 
finance and getting the money that has been promised by the global north into these countries so they can build renewable energy, so they can build the infrastructure that they need to help fulfill our mission, which is carbon-free or clean energy that's affordable and dependable for everyone. I look forward to following these developments. This has been great. Matt, your team at Transition Zero is doing some really interesting work for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI organizations. Where can people find out more about you online? So we are online at transitionzero.org. We're on Twitter, same handle, Transition Zero. We're on LinkedIn. We have a GitHub repository, which you can also check out. And in general, we're hosting webinars all of the time. So feel free to sign up to our newsletter to find out when our data and, and modeling's available or join one of our webinars, which we have when we publish results of the analysis that we do. Perfect. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Heather. It's been great to chat. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.